Good evening, everyone. How are you? Awesome. Someone said awesome. I am very happy to see you. Let me tell you a secret. I thought of you all day today. In other words, that's my way of saying I missed you. Did anyone think of me for five seconds today? Ah, God bless you. God bless you. No one likes to be forgotten. So I'm very delighted that you thought of me. I really did think of you. And I pray that God will bless us tonight as we embark upon another adventure in his word. So thank you for coming. You have the assurance that God will bless you for your presence here tonight. And our subject for tonight, poor Satan. Poor Satan. You know, he gets the blame for almost everything we do that's wrong. Many years ago, those of you who are old enough, you perhaps remember a comedy on television called The Flip Wilson Show. No one remembers that but I? All right. You're making me nervous. In his show, Flip had an expression that became popular all over the country. What was that expression? The devil made me do it. Tonight, I will show you that that is not the case. The devil cannot make you or me do anything that we do not elect and choose to do. Satan does not have a gun he puts to our heads. Satan can bring a temptation. We have to exercise the choice to go with him or a choice to go against him. But certainly I need to say that not all things we do that are wrong are the result of the devil's temptations. Poor Satan is our subject for tonight. Let us bow our heads and pray. Loving Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We have been invited in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, this is a time of need. I ask you from my heart and in the name of Jesus, grant to me what I need and that is the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit. And grant to my brothers and sisters what they need, and that is understanding of your divine word. Do this for us, we pray, and we will give you the glory. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. By the way, all those of you who brought Bibles, raise them, let me see. This is impressive. It really is. Contrary to what I see when I travel around the world. The, the, the habit of bringing Bibles with, uh, to church with people is fading away. And I'm glad to see most of us have our Bibles with us. Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17. I still hear pages. Do we have it now? The Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That has always been the penalty for sin. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. So effectively, what God was telling Adam in Genesis 2, 16, 17, in the day that you sin, 
you will die. Because any action contrary to God's will is sin. Well, God said, don't eat of one tree. If you do, you die. And since death is the wages of sin, then what God was telling Adam is, if you sin, you will die. If you eat of the tree, contrary to my will and my word, then you have sinned, and the punishment for that is death. Now, many people ask the question, what was so horrible about Adam's sin? All he did was to bite or eat a fruit. And for people who are vegetarians, many of you are, perhaps you don't see the horrible nature of that sin, eating a fruit. Let us examine how truly catastrophic and insulting and horrible Adam's sin was. In Genesis 1.31, the Bible says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Now that included everything from day one to day six, including Adam and Eve, including the wedding which God at which he officiated when he made man and woman, husband and wife, on that sixth day of creation. Everything was good, including Adam. Adam was made sinless. Adam was made with a heart that had no desire to do wrong. Did you hear me? When Adam came from the hand of his creator, there was nothing in him that leaned towards sin. Adam's mind was so connected with the mind of his creator that when we read Genesis chapter 2 verse 19, let's go there, that verse gives us a remarkable revelation of how united Adam's mind was with the mind of his creator. His mind and God's mind were one. That verse says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Notice the expression, to see. It's like a test. God tells Adam, name all the creatures, and God steps back. And he watches Adam. And he listens to see what Adam would call these animals. And the Bible says, And whatsoever Adam called every living creature... That was the name thereof, meaning every time Adam gave a name, God said yes. Every living creature for every name Adam chose, God was in effect saying, that was the name I would have chosen. That is a human mind connected with the divine mind. By the way, let me digress briefly. When you and I are that close to God, our decisions become God decisions. Our will becomes God's will. Our desires are God's desires because our will our, and God's will, our minds and God's mind are united. And the omnipotent power of God's mind flows into ours. Come on, I need more amens than that. The omnipotence of his will flows into ours and we are charged and energized by the very omnipotence of God. And so every name that Adam gave, God said, yes. That's exactly, my son must have been reading my mind. 
This was how close Adam was to his creator. Not everything in him found an echo in God. Here comes the devil. Through Eve. Uh, don't say amen. <laughs> There's no amen when a wife leads her husband into sin or vice versa. Let me tell you something by way of another digression. When you make decisions to follow Christ, when you make decisions to accept the truth as it is in Jesus, do not be shocked, chagrined, or mortified if your greatest opposition comes from members of the family. There is no greater opposition. Why is it so great? Because it is coming from those you love. If it comes from those outside of family, the pain is not that great. If there's any pain at all, you can say, I couldn't care less. You don't say that to your family members. So Adam, here comes Eve, an agent of the enemy, and brings the temptation to Adam. There is nothing in Adam that naturally responds to the temptation. It is all an external experience. Nothing in him, I say, was answering to that external temptation. Adam made a cold-blooded decision. You know, the courts recognize crimes of passion, which is, in some people's eyes, a form of insanity. He was mad. The man came home, found his wife in bed with another man, and in a fit of passion, he killed the other man. The courts will understand that. They won't set you free, but they may put you on probation. Crime of passion. It came from within. That was not the case with Adam. Calmly, I say it cold-bloodedly, Adam chose, without any internal motivation, he chose to sin against God. Now the Bible says Eve was deceived. Now you can make, as a human being, as a human being, we can make exceptions for deception. If someone is deceived, we can say, well, someone pulled the wool over his eyes. Adam was not deceived with his eyes wide open with an awareness of what he was doing. Adam violated the known will of God. Now that's serious. That's why the Bible says, For as by one man sin entered into the world, not by one woman. One man, Adam's sin, we are here tonight. So Adam's sin was a slap in the face of a holy God. And it was not the devil's fault. Did you hear me? I'm not defending Lucifer, uh, Satan. I have no time to defend Satan. I'm simply defending truth. It was not the devil's fault that Adam sinned. It was whose fault? Adam's fault. Now he has sinned. Let's take a look at how the horrible nature of sin rolls on. Like an avalanche. When they sinned, things changed. Some things changed immediately. Other things changed gradually. Psychologically, what changed in Adam? Let's go to Genesis 2.25. As we continue our subject, poor Satan. We blame him for every wrong thing we do. And he's not responsible for every wrong thing we do. He's not responsible for any wrong thing we do. 
He's responsible for temptations. Most of them, we are responsible for our decisions and our choices. Genesis 2.25, listen to this verse carefully. The Bible says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife. How does that verse end? And were not ashamed. Prior to sin, there was no such thing as shame, disgrace, humiliation, or embarrassment. When you're home alone, all by yourself, and you go to the bathroom, do you close the door? Yes. 99.99 people close the door. Privacy. There's no one else in the house. We close the door. A sense of shame, embarrassment. We protect ourselves from that. Adam and Eve had no sense of shame prior to sin. Now let's go to verse 7 of chapter 3. Verse 7 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, the Bible says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. By implication, therefore, in verse 25, which says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The implication is that they had no sense of nakedness. Now that is innocence. And we see remnants of that today, where? In little children. How do little children run around? If you give them half a chance. Naked. And they come to you and they laugh, male, female. They walk down, what's the street? East Street, naked as a jaybird. They couldn't care less. In the sense, by the time they're five and six. You can forget it. They have to be dressed. Why? Because they now develop a sense of shame. Even in societies where people run around almost totally nude, they also have their sense of shame. And so in verse 7 of chapter 3, the Bible says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now that they knew, they sawed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So now sin has created immediately, as it were, a sense of shame. A sense of exposure. Now they tried to deal with this exposure. So they made fig leaves, they made aprons from fig leaves and of course they clothed themselves the other catastrophic outcome of sin sin created in humanity the desire to fix their own moral problems many people they say well before i come to christ let me fix this problem and that problem and the next no human being can fix himself spiritually outside of jesus christ it is by coming to christ as we are to try to fix myself first before coming to Christ is merely to take more steps toward hell. I cannot do it. But the principle of sin, the power of sin, leads us to believe. Do some work on yourself first and then give yourself to Christ. It is suicidal to think that way. Sin brought about that kind of thinking. That's why God had to remove the aprons in verse 21 and gave them coats of skins. You cannot fix yourself the devil did not do that what does the sin do 
Let's continue chapter 3, verse 9. The Bible says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was what? Afraid. Sin created what? Fear. What's our series entitled? Freedom from fear. Sin created in human beings fear. And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I felt exposed, and something in me said, I should not be seen in your presence this way. And I did what? Hid myself. The other outcome of sin. Sin placed in human beings a desire to run in the opposite direction from God. Now you can do that while going to church every Sunday. Or Wednesday. Or Friday. Or Saturday. There are many people in churches, religiously, who are running from God. And then there are those who do it in a more extreme way. They never grace the doors of the church. Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I heard. No one told me. I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. And Eve hid me. Please correct me. I hid myself. Sin is not a group activity. Sin is a personal choice. I hid myself. The Lord God said unto him, Who told thee that thou wast naked? How do you know? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee thou shouldst not eat? In other words, did you disobey? That's all God is saying. Did you go contrary to what I said? Did you disobey? The man said in verse 12, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, the other capacity sin created, making excuses for one's failures. And one of the greatest excuses we make is to say, well, I am only human. I am only human. That's why God says, I am only giving you divine power. Because I know you're only human. Sin created in us the capacity and it has, it has been revived to an art form to come up with excuses. That's the moral and the psychological outcome of sin. Let's look at the physical effects that sin had. Genesis 3 verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. There was no sorrow before sin. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, I'm sure you've seen on the, the medical channel, do you have that in this part of the world? Always showing childbirths. I've never been in a delivery room, but they tell me women scream. I've heard on some occasions they curse the husband. As the one responsible for their Gethsemane, their Golgotha. Why? Sin. 
it was not God's plan that birth be given painfully. Without sin, childbirth would have been painless. To go from painless to painful, something happened in the body. And I'm no doctor. Sin had physical effects. Let's look at other physical effects sin had. Verse, let's go to verse 17 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. We continue, poor Satan. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Sorrow for the man, sorrow for the woman. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Verse 19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. In the sweat of thy face. This is a result of sin. Another evidence of the physical transformation and change that came about within Adam and Eve as a result of this power called sin. The problem with us today, we underestimate how horrible sin is, and so we sin without blinking an eye. Not realizing sin deformed people, sin deformed creation. Let's go back to verse 17 of Genesis 3. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Read that next part for me now. Cursed is what? The ground. Sin resulted in a curse on the ground. So when God was giving, was telling Cain what would happen to him as a result of his having murdered his brother Abel, God said in Genesis 4, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. Will not produce as I originally intended. Why? Because of sin. Sin led to a curse on the ground. Now because the ground was cursed, the ground began to produce that which it never produced before. Let's go to Genesis 3.18. Sin is nothing to play with. Genesis 3 verse 18 the Bible says, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Genesis 18, chapter 3 verse 18, gives us information about plant life that did not exist before sin. Thorns and thistles were not on rose bushes until after sin. And so we read in John 19 verse 5, Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns. Because the effect of sin on creation, the death of Christ also atoned for that in some way. So he took the thorns as a symbol of the curse on the ground. And he took our humanity as a symbol of the curse on man. And both went to the cross. Because the power that saves people from sin is the very same power that redeems the earth. Sin is a horrible thing. But the devil has never yet forced one man or one woman to sin. Not one. Nor do all our temptations come from him. Again, let me make it very clear. I am not making life easy for the Satan. I'm not doing that. 
I am trying to clear up our understanding of the responsibility God has placed on us for our own actions. By the way, not only can the devil not make you sin, your friends cannot make you sin. Because there's such a thing as choosing to die rather than sin. And there have been hundreds and thousands of people who have chosen death rather than sin. Sin, horrible. And of course, the worst outcome of sin, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The end of everything as God intended it. Now, if we summarize all that we have said, it seems clear that this power, this thing called sin, its ultimate purpose is to undo what God intends. Let me say it differently. The purpose of sin is to cause us to go west if God desires that we go east. That is the purpose of sin. To undo to reverse that which God has done and ultimately destroy it. Now, how is God to deal with this problem? After Adam sinned, prior to sin, he could not be tempted from within. There was nothing in him that answered to sin. He was made with a sinless nature. After sin, Adam now was susceptible to temptation from without. And within, because his nature changed. Like that. Perhaps the fastest effect of sin was the change in the nature of Adam and Eve. Here's how the Bible describes a sinful nature. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. What's the nickname that theologians give to Jeremiah? The what? The weeping prophet, yes. What's the nickname given to Isaiah? The gospel prophet, because Isaiah speaks so much about Jesus and the work he would come to do. Jeremiah 13, verse 23, the Bible says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? What's the answer? Or the leopard his spots? What's the answer? Then may ye do good that are accustomed to do evil. That verse is simply saying it is impossible for the sinful nature to do what's right. What word did I use? Impossible. And that word was not used accidentally. It was used deliberately. Let us fortify uh, Jeremiah 13.23 with Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. Since the devil can't force you to sin, no one really has to sin. Come on, say amen. amen. You sound unhappy when I said that. No one has to sin. There is no power on earth that can compel you to sin. We're in Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above most things and desperately <laughs> Whose heart? Can you point to a heart for me? Okay, good. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above 
and desperately wicked. Now when the verse ends with these words, who can know it? It simply means no one can fully understand the depth of wickedness of the sinful nature. It is impossible for a human being to understand. That's why Jesus told James and John when they said, shall we pray and call fire on heaven from heaven and destroy that Samaritan village? He said to them, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are. You're not even familiar with the depths of your potential for wickedness. They wanted to commit murder in his name. Walking around with him every day. We are unaware of how deep the roots of sin go into our hearts. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Reading verse 7. And this verse goes right along with Jeremiah 13, 23 and Jeremiah 17, 9, Romans 8, verse 7. Do we have that? The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul says, because the carnal mind is what? Enmity against God. Where did the carnal mind begin? With Adam. The carnal mind is enmity against God. What's enmity? Hatred, hostility, a venomous attitude. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at that verse again, verse 7 of Romans 8, because the carnal mind, the flesh, the fallen nature, it is naturally hateful of God and opposed to his law and cannot keep the law. Now this is a terrible condition because it is the law that is the standard of judgment. Are you following me? Ecclesiastes 12, uh, 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. All God requires of us is fear God and Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we shall be judged by the law of liberty, the Ten Commandments. But the carnal mind can't keep the Ten Commandments. We need help. We need help. Now, the carnal mind can develop a very well-mannered life. Step back and open the car door for a lady. That's not salvation. But a saved man will do it. Come on, say amen. The carnal mind knows how to put the napkin right in here. Yes, that's fine. No napkins in heaven. <laughs> the carnal mind knows whether white wine goes with fish or blue wine goes with vegetables or pinstripe wine goes with pork. The, the, the carnal mind can learn these things. That's not transformation of character. To be transformed into his image, we need divine help. Because the way we were born, the nature with which we are born, is a nature that cannot keep God's law the way God wants it kept. Now, the carnal nature can avoid physical murder. But the Bible speaks of murder as more than just physical. It speaks of murder as a state of heart towards someone. 
The carnal mind can avoid physical adultery. But the Bible speaks of adultery as more than just physical. It speaks of it as a state of mind. That the carnal mind can't keep. At the spiritual level, the carnal mind cannot keep the law. It can keep the law behaviorally to a certain degree. We need help. Because the thing we can't keep is the standard by which we're judged. Now, here's what God says he'll do. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Let's read verse 33. And on this point, there's so many verses we can refer to, but we don't have the time tonight. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Well-known verse. Do we have Jeremiah? The Bible says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will do what? Put my law in the inward parts and write it where? On their hearts now. Let us take a closer look at that verse in light of other verses. Hold on to Jeremiah 31, 33. Go to Jeremiah 79. As we continue, poor Satan. We're trying to make the point that the devil is not responsible for any person's choice to do wrong. Nor is the devil responsible for all the temptations that come our way. We of ourselves enter into temptation frequently without any help from Satan because we have a sinful nature. You have Jeremiah 79? Let's go over that again. Don't lose Jeremiah 31, 33. The heart is what? Deceitful above all things. Now, the heart is deceitful. When you read Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind, same thing, the heart frequently refers to the mind, the center of a person where decisions for right and wrong, where the personality is anchored, that part of him which makes him or her human, that, the heart, the mind, is deceitful above all things. Now, right there is where the problem is rooted. Let's intensify that. Go to Mark chapter 7. Reading from verse 20, 20 of Mark 7. Mark, the second gospel, the shortest. Mark was not one of the twelve disciples. Here we have Mark 7, verse 20. That, but he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. Next verse. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed what? Evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murders, theft, covetousness, deceit, wickedness, lasciviousness, and even I blasphemy proud. All of these things come from where? The heart. The heart. Jesus said that. Now, is the heart outside or inside? Inside. They come from within. Satan doesn't have to come and do anything. If the devil dropped dead now, and we still have the sinful nature, we will have sinful desires. Are you listening to me? You don't need the devil's help to have a sinful desire. We were born that way, but there's a remedy for us. 
Now we have seen the heart is deceitful above all things. Out of the heart, says Jesus, who cannot lie, come evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, deceit, covetousness, wickedness, lasciviousness, and evil life, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Now that's just a small list. Now God says, here's what I'll do. Jeremiah 31, 33, let's go back there now. You see, God always focuses on the source of the problem, not the surface. The surface takes care of itself when the source is taken care of. You want to change someone's behavior, change the person's thinking. And the behavior will change. Jesus didn't die to change your hands. He died to change our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law where? In their inward parts. And write it in their hearts or on their hearts. Now, Jesus says, exactly where sin begins. Where sin has its earliest manifestation, where evil desires have the earliest expression of life, I will put my law right there. What is there about the law? Why didn't Jesus put something else there? Why the law? We talked about the law when we talked about who has your back. Because... The memory decays so quickly. Let's review briefly. Go to Psalm 119. Let's read verse 151. Genesis, uh, not Genesis, Psalm 119, verse 151. Do we have that? Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. How many commandments are truth? All. Let's go to Psalm 142. We went from 151. Let's go to 142. It's not that far away. Do we have it now? Thy righteousness is what? An everlasting righteousness. And thy law is what? The truth. Now, verse 141, 142 of Psalm 119 says, Thy law is the truth. Verse 151 of Psalm 119 says, All thy commandments are truth. What does truth do? Okay. Truth does what? What else does it do? Psalm, uh, John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word, is truth. Now, thy word is truth. What is the word of God? What is it? Where is it? From? 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 From Genesis? From? To? Yes. Does that include the Ten Commandments? Does that mean the law can save you? No. But the law we found out is an expression of what? The righteous 
character of God. Now, when you hear the word character, don't think of something lifeless. Character is life. Your character is the life you choose to live. God's character is his righteous life. There is nothing dead in God. His righteousness is his character is his righteous life. The only way to determine a person's character is to observe the person living. So the law of God, which God writes and puts right where sin begins, it is a living principle. Why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick. What does quick mean? Alive. How much of the word of God is quick? All of it. Does that include the Ten Commandments? Yes. Jesus said in John 6.63, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. What spirit? Now don't break my heart. What spirit? The Holy Spirit. And what life? Eternal life. They are in the word of God. And God takes his living, spirit-filled word. He takes that which sums up all there is to life. The whole duty of man. That's what the Ten Commandments are. That's what the law is. He takes the entire summary of life for any created being and he puts it right where sin begins so that sin is seen in distinct contrast. And since the Word of God has the Spirit of God in it, now that Spirit-filled Word does several things in your heart. It tells you immediately, this is wrong. Now many people know it's wrong, but they're not convicted. They do it anyhow. The Spirit not only informs you through the Word, which is the law, it is wrong, it convicts you. Without conviction, no one will do what's right. Where does this conviction begin? At the very point where sin begins as a desire. God does not want sin to become a behavior. Or he would have put the law in your knuckles and your feet and your hips. He put it in the heart or the mind. Because behavior begins with thinking. You see, every action has a motive. Did you hear me? Now, you may not be familiar with your motive. Because some motives are so deep-rooted and so hidden. And we discover that the Word of God reveals motives. Every action has a motive. The law judges the motive. And corrects you at the level of the motive or the intention or the desire. And having made the correction at that very basic level, there is no chance now of that desire becoming behavior because it has been corrected. What is that power in the word of God that does that? The power is nothing less than the law abiding life of Christ. The only living being who kept the law, how? Perfectly. Perfectly. And Jesus promises, 
I will give you my life. Which is his way of saying, I will give myself to you. You don't go to Jesus, get life, and then walk away. Are you following me? The life is Jesus. This side looks lost. Let me try it again. And that side too. And this side. Is that a side? Life is not something separate from God. Jesus is life. And so he, from his own divine lips, he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Not I have life, which he has, but I am life. 1 John 5, 11, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12, he that hath the Son hath life. So your choice tonight must be a choice to receive Christ into the heart. For receiving him, you receive life, and the life of Christ has no sin in it. Say amen quickly. The life of Christ is the most glorious example of how the law ought to function in a person's day-to-day life. And the entire life of Christ, the Father said, yes, yes. That's what I had in mind for Adam. That's why I call him the second Adam. Yes, yes, yes. When Christ came up against temptations, his reaction, the Father said, that's what I had in mind. That's what I wanted the first Adam, how I wanted him to react and behave and think. God puts his law, which is really a power of a principle. What do I mean by that? The Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, but there were people living for hundreds of years obeying God and there was no written Ten Commandments. Why is that? There's a difference between a law and a principle. Let me explain this way. I want to move, but there's a camera on me, so I'll stay in one place. I like to move a little, circulate the blood. I was talking to two friends of mine this afternoon about this same principle. And we observed that when you drive through a school district, the speed limit is 25 during school hours. I've seen those signs. 25. You get on, what is it, 10, 10, 10, is that the highway? You don't know? 10. It's uh, 55. Maybe you have another highway that's 75 or 70. When I fly from Detroit to London, sometimes the, the plane goes 600 miles per hour if it's, a, if it's a 747. 600 miles up there. Because there are highways in the sky, whether you know it or not, for planes. Whether it is 600 miles in the air at 33,000 feet or 38, or 70 on a 6-lane or 12-lane interstate, or 55 on a local highway, or 25 in a school district, while the speeds change, and each speed is a law, the law says 25, the law says 55, the law says 70, the law says 600, there's something that does not change, and that is the principle of safety. Are you with me? Now, that principle does not change. Now, if that principle is in my heart, I will never drive 75 in a school district. I don't need a law. Ah, all of you didn't say amen. You didn't get it. Let me try again. And I'm running out of time. 
When the principle is in the heart, you don't need the law. Because your life is exactly what the law had in mind. Yes, sir. As I was telling my friends, you don't have to tell a decent mother to feed her children. Even though there are laws in the books that will put her in prison if she doesn't. She doesn't need the law because the principle of selfless love for that child drives that woman. You may need a law to stop her from giving the child so much food. Now you're driving down the highway. The, 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 I used to speed a lot. Don't say amen. And uh, one day I was, I was sitting in my car, little Honda CRX, love that little thing. And uh, I said, Lord, you know, this car really is yours. It's not mine. So I sat in the car and I prayed. I said, Father, I commit to you what has always been yours. I'm sorry for not recognizing that. I regard this car as under my stewardship, not ownership. It is yours. I will fix it, wash it, change the tires, put the oil, the gas, whatever else. But it is yours. I am taking care of it for you. Two weeks later, I got into the car to drive and I was about to fly low. That's the way I usually drove. The Spirit said to me, as clear as day, this is my car now. You cannot drive it like that. Well, you're laughing. I didn't laugh. I was scared. It was as clear as day. This is my car now. One week later, I checked my mileage. I was getting 10 more miles to the gallon. But the point I want to make is, I began to drive now under the principle of stewardship not I need to get somewhere quickly. And the principle of stewardship changed my behavior because this is not mine, it is his, and I take greater care of what's his than what's mine. Principle. When Jesus said, I will put my law in their hearts, he put the principles. A man or woman living by principles does not need to be told, don't kill your neighbor because the principle of love will leave that person to die before killing someone. The principle of love is the precise opposite to sin. Sin reverse God's intention for this earth. It would function by love. Selfless love, unselfishness was to be the driving principle in the entire world. Sin reversed that from unselfishness to self-centeredness. When God puts the law in your heart, by the power of that word, which is really the power of Christ, the man or the woman is turned back on the path of unselfish living. And so your first thought is never you. It is God, then your fellow man, then yourself. What is the answer to sin? The life of Christ. How does the life of Christ come to us? Through faith in his word. All of this was written that we might be brought back to the way it was over here in Genesis. You understand what I'm saying? Because Revelation 22:14 says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that obey, that they may go to the tree from which Adam was expelled. The entire Bible is God's way to bring us back to a life of loving obedience to Him. Sin was the devil's plan to capsize and put upside down 
God's principle of an unselfish existence. All sin is a result of putting God after myself and yourself. And it is both a choice to sin and a choice to obey God. You and I have internal desires to do wrong. Sometimes the devil has nothing to do with that. They are the result of our fallen natures, but through surrender of the life to Christ, Christ gives us a power now that fights that natural power to sin. And Christ's power is greater than the power of the flesh. And if we hold on to Jesus through faith in his word, and faith in God's word has two components, hear it and do it. Come on, all of you say amen. What's... Hear it and do it. Therein lies the power to live above sin, which has always been God's desire for us, to live a life pleasing to me. And a life that pleases God is a life that will please you now and delight you in the world to come. And that world is coming faster than you and I think. It behooves us now to separate ourselves from sin as fast as we can. Because the, the law which says the wages of sin is death, that law cannot be broken. But he or she who accepts Jesus Christ, life, not just in the world to come, but life now. My brothers and my sisters, none of us has to sin. We blame the devil for too many things. We are required by God to take responsibility for our choices. We don't need God's help to do wrong. We need his help to do right. And that help is available day by day, moment by moment, by Christ abiding in the heart. His abiding life expresses his righteous life, which is codified as the Ten Commandments. The law of God is placed in our heart as a defense against sin if we will allow the defense to work. How many of you will say, Lord, I thank you for this message. Give me that power of the life of my Savior. Give me his righteous life in my heart that I may have the power to say no to sin. If you will say that, let me see your right hand and raise it with confidence and vigor. If you're serious, stand to your feet and I won't hold you long. Let's delight God, bring joy to heaven by saying individually, Lord, I want to have nothing to do with sin. I want to have nothing to do with that power that is intended to capsize and reverse your original plan. I want to take my stand on the side of righteousness. And righteous, the clearest expression of righteousness is the life of Christ. After that is the Ten Commandments. When I say after that, I mean in written form, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, Christ's life is the Ten Commandments lived out. That's what he desires for us righteous living, which is Christ-like living, which is selfless living, which is living by the principles of love for God and love for our fellow man, which ultimately is living a life of loving obedience to anything God says. Is that really your desire? 
Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we're not joking, dear God. We're serious because we've gotten a glimpse of the horrible nature of sin and the delights of living a life that pleases you. In the name of Jesus, who lived a perfect life of obedience to your law, we ask you, dear Father, forgive our sins. Forgive us for excusing our weaknesses. And please, dear God, put into our hearts the very life of Christ. Give us a mind that loves righteousness and hates sin with a passion. Please put that in us, we pray, and bring us back tomorrow night to hear more of this edifying word, this strengthening word. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake, let all God's people say with me, Amen and Amen. My brothers and sisters, bring someone tomorrow night. Please bring someone tomorrow night to hear words that can change the life. Get home safely. God bless you. I want to go to the door to shake your hands. I haven't been doing that, and that's not good. Give me a chance to get down the aisle. Let me shake some hands. God bless you.